I am grumpy though. I am actually feeling a bit sad and grumpy this afternoon. I think I think I saw you tweet about that. Is that your Motorhead gig being cancelled? Yeah, I know it is. I was really looking forward to it. Um, in a couple of weeks, it's it's for my birthday. It was my birthday treat to go and see Motorhead. And uh, we usually go sort of every year. Alex and I went together for years, um, and now he's gone off. Um, Sue, I asked Sue to to go with me. She's never been to a Motorhead gig before. So <laughs> we were sitting, oh, this is a couple of months ago, but we were sitting on the couch one evening and uh, she had a glass of wine and I, I just discovered somehow I was looking at the tour dates or something. And, oh, my dad are playing on my birthday in Manchester. Will you come? And she went, yeah. So within about five minutes, I'd, before she had a chance to sort of think twice, I, I bought the tickets. So. And it's actually on my birthday, yeah. So, yeah, she's never been to a motorhead gig before. So that was going to be a laugh. It's always fun dragging someone along that may or may not like the music. She got earplugs, because, you know, it's loud, right? Yeah. (laughs) And I I was trying to tell her that she needed those kind of big ear defenders that, you know, forklift truck drivers wear. (laughs) <laughs> Just to, take a pair of these, love. These will do, yeah? You can't wear earplugs to a gig. You're, you're there to get your hearing destroyed. That's the point. What? That's it's... part of the fun. Otherwise, it's not loud enough. Yeah, we see. It's at the, the Manchester Apollo, which is the loudest venue I've ever been to as well. But the, they have rescheduled it. It's because Lemmy's ill. So no, not that he listens, but, you know, hi, Lemmy. Um, but, yeah, he's ill. So they don't, obviously, they've postponed the tour till next February. Which is fine, except that on the exact day where they've rescheduled the one in Manchester, I'm going to be flying to Atlanta for a conference. So I'm like, Rah! and there's nothing else. I looked on, I looked on the um, the Manchester Arena and other websites, and you know, there's absolutely nothing on that I would want to go see. What have we got here? I'm just having a look. Are they not doing any other UK dates? Yeah, they are, but it's it's all when I'm going to be in Atlanta. Um, WWE SmackDown. That would be quite fun. I fancy, <laughs> fancy a bit of wrestling. Um, who else we got here? Simple Minds and Ultravox. Christ, even I'm not old enough to go and see them. Yeah, I was just thinking they're something old, aren't they? That's that's. Yeah, they are. Yeah, yeah. Will I am. I hate that guy. Yeah, JLS. I'm not doing You're not well a teenage here, am I? Girl, no. no, I know. It's like when Alex and I went to see Taylor Swift once for a laugh. We, we could hear they were, they were making the place with us like me and Alex and like four thousand prepubescent girls in the auditorium, making this noise that only dogs could hear. Oh, that must have been horrible. It was, I, it was uh, At a Prince gig, I sat in front of a woman who decided to scream her way through all of the solos, which really wound me up where do you stand on Lady Gaga that's uh, not a joke of, some of <laughs> <laughs> on her head no that wasn't I meant no what, do you like are you a fan I thought some of her early stuff was interesting but uh, like kind of in a poppy catchy way but I'm not too bothered now it's kind of it's all a bit Madonna now yeah somebody else said that recently 
I've been, I've just been trying to get in because I'm, you know, I, I just stick to what I know most of the time, and I've been trying to just expand my musical taste a bit because most of the stuff that I listen to, you know, I'm listening to the same stuff as I was listening to like 20 years ago. So oh, I was watching, um, you know, the iTunes Festival. Yeah. That was was it September, and I started to watch. Um, well, I watched the Lady Gaga one at the beginning, which I thought was really good, actually. I've, I think stage show wise, um, I think I'd like to go to her gig just to see the show because I think that that looks like it would be quite interesting. Yeah. Well, I just thought I'm going to watch every, or try to anyway, catch every artist every night. Um, and I got about halfway through the month before I kind of just gave up. Um, who, who are the ones that you couldn't get through at all then? Um, Elton John. Oh, really? Don't go there. Yeah, he was he was bad. Um, some people just need to retire gracefully. Who else was on? I'm trying to think. I'll tell you who I liked while I look up who I didn't like. Um, I liked Lady Gaga. She was good. I like uh, there's a band called Polisa. P O L I C with a little cedilla. Oh, I think you tweeted a link to their stuff the other day, didn't you? Yeah. No, I've been listening so, to a lot of their stuff. Kind uh, of. Slightly atmospheric stuff. Hmm. Which was different for me because I really don't like electronic music. And I hate dance music. I absolutely hate dance music with a passion. Um, but this was good. I enjoyed this. Yeah, that's, that's the kind of stuff I find. A lot of people that do web stuff and design stuff tend to listen to atmospheric stuff. Yeah. That's um, what I find. People are always recommending me things like that. And there were the, the girl, I forget her name now, that sings with Polly said, she, it, it, there's a lot of auto tuning and there's a lot of kind of vocal manipulation, which is not my thing at all normally. Um, it's not this, but it's, so you can't tell what she says most of the time. It's not like you can listen to the lyrics, but because it is kind of atmospheric y, but it's not like she's singing in some kind of made up language. Like, who's that? That, um, is it an Ice, some, it's Icelandic band that like, have their own made up language? No idea. Yeah. I'm 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 not very um, cool, I guess, when it comes to music. No, um, me neither. But yeah, I've just been trying to expand my taste a little bit. Yeah, I've been I've been trying to find some good new music recently, and lots of people send me suggestions, and I have to stay quiet because otherwise I end up saying mean things about their mm-hmm. taste in music. Yeah, no, it's difficult. Oh, Sega Ross, that was that was those. Dug, oh, oh yeah, yeah. They were on. I tried. I got. I got in about five minutes in and had to turn them off. Yeah, I know it's it's going to sound criminal to say this, but I think they're really boring. Yeah, I didn't like them. Um, who else? I tell you what, I did like because it's really cheesy and poppy. I liked Eliza Doolittle. She was fun. Um, I've heard else? of her, but I don't think yeah, I've she's, heard all, music. she's poppy nonsense. Um, can't remember who else is on now, but yeah, it was good. I enjoyed it. So I've just been trying to expand out my little musical taste a bit, really. Have you tried uh, Rushmore, the um, the web app? That's the thing that Collie works on, isn't it? No, I haven't tried it. It's really good. It's kind of like a big old music encyclopedia, but it's quite good for finding related artists and things like that. Right. Because no, I'll go down a rabbit hole sort of looking up stuff about artists to fill in one of these pages, and I find like a few other bands that are related to the band that I like, and that's quite a good way of finding Sort of stuff that's similar but not the same. I've never done 
the, the whole social music thing. Um, like, I mean, I, I do keep my iPod scrobbling to last FM. Um, but Lord knows why, because I never actually do anything with the data. I never go back and go, cool. You listened to a lot of motorhead that week. Yeah, I've been trying to do that this week using Last FM and Spotify to find stuff, and it just makes me hate people that use Last FM because the things that they they'll like bands that I like, and then they'll like a load of other stuff that Last FM then thinks I like, and it's absolute rubbish. And the the top played things for all of the bands I like are always the ballads, and I don't get that because I uh, ballads are usually boring. You're not a power ballad girl, then. I like I like stuff that's heavy and uh, just has a bit of bit more action to it than yeah soppy whining about things. <laughs> yeah, you see, I wasn't going to get that at the Motorhead gig, was I? I was going to get all my favourite classics. Yeah, yeah, killed by death. Very very old school. Uh, kind of love me band. like a reptile. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's got to be the show title, really, isn't it? <laughs> that's it. One of the reasons why I like having you on the show, Laura, mm. you send me questions. You send me stuff before we record. Yeah, well, it's, it's fun, our, our chats. I like it because we have, we kind of think similarly about some stuff and you're, you're the only person I really talk to about these kind of things in this depth, so it gives me an excuse to think up some stuff. Oh, that's very nice. Oh, I'll tell you what, before we get into it, I did my accessibility talk over in Oslo a couple of weeks ago. Oh, yeah. How did that go? It was good, actually. Um, I meant to mention this to you before we got on the show. Um, I was only there for a really, really short time because I literally like, I got there kind of on the Wednesday afternoon, spoke on the Thursday morning, and then literally like within an hour, I was back going to, heading towards the airport again. So I couldn't see anybody else. But I, I think it went okay, I think. Um, but it was interesting, you know, you're talking about accessibility and, you know, I'm kind of doing the same. And with mine, it was, it was kind of back to familiar ground in a way. Um, yeah, I, th- I think it feels familiar to a lot of us. And it's kind of, it feels like those principles that we build a lot of our stuff upon. But then the problem is that it's not actually familiar to the majority of people. This and is what I, I realise that more and more. Well, this is what made, what's made me incredulous. You know, I, watching your talk and you know then kind of preparing my own and reading around and stuff before I did it, thinking, Christ, we talked about this ten years ago. You would think that people understood about testing colour contrast and um, you know fluid measurement, all the stuff. You know, all, all of the little tips and things that you know we were putting into the talks. You think you think people just do this. But as though it's like a whole new audience for the same stuff. Yeah, I think I think we do need to keep going over those basics. And if we are trying to share stuff with the community, it is actually worth going back over that stuff because how how do we learn it? How did we learn it? And can people learn it that way now? Because I think I learned loads of my stuff from the books that I read when I first started out. There have to be some really good books there, and there, I don't think there were that many either in terms of like great web standards books. And now I think there's probably too many to choose, and there's so many sites telling you about stuff that people think, oh, I don't need to bother reading a book. But then they might actually miss out on the basics because all they're reading up on is the articles on sort of the new and fun 
exciting, shiny stuff and not the sort of basic foundation stuff you need to know. Yeah. I mean, you know, there are some books, um, Five Simple Steps, a little pocket guide um, about colour accessibility that um, Jerry Cody wrote. Oh, yeah, I saw Jerry's talk that she did um, that's on the same topic, how it's a really good talk. Yeah, I mean, that's that kind of stuff. I was just amazed that we're having to have the same conversations, um, you know, kind of <laughs> five or ten years later. But, you know. Yeah, next next we'll be telling people about how to write semantic HTML. Font tags and spacesuit GIFs. I'm going to write a book about those. How to use tables. Actually, you know, you should actually... <laughs> there needs to be better articles on how to use tables because you... There's so much in it. We're digressing, obviously, from the business stuff. But, you know, tables are actually really hard to do properly. Yeah, I, uh, I find it really hard. I'm doing a, a big table as well. Uh, I find it impossible to write out the um, the HTML just straight into the text editor. I usually have to find some kind of old-school WYSIWYG editor just so I make sure everything's showing up in the right places. Yeah, col span and row span and axis and scope and all those things. I should write about that stuff again at some point. Yeah, and cell padding and cell spacing. Like, having to set zero if you don't want everything to look a bit 90s. Yep. Mind you, see, that's me all over, in it? A bit 90s. Ask me your questions, then. What were the questions did you have? <laughs> okay, so my first question was, um, about a month ago, I gave my first workshop, my first solo workshop. I had given one before, uh, teamed up with a role, but he did most of the work and so this is the first one I've ever done by myself and it was a good experience and the people that attended were really lovely but I did wonder why other people do quite a lot of them and whether it is financially viable because I got paid an okay amount I'd say it wasn't it wasn't worth the amount of time I put into it and that's only because I had a minimum amount in my contract so I was wondering what you thought about that because you do quite a lot of workshops. You're doing your workshops with Smasher magazine, and is that a good thing to do financially? Um, yes, often. Um, I mean, just a bit of background. I started off doing workshops back in about 2005 or six. Um, the first ones that I did were with Ryan Carson when he was still. Um, Carson Systems, and they used to do Carson workshops, and they used to do um, various kind of HTML, CSS, techie workshops. Um, people would come over. I think Eric Meyer came over and did some, and I did some. Molly Holzklag did some, um, and they were on the basis that we would get a flat fee. And I think at the time, anyway, the flat fee was like fifteen hundred quid. Yeah, and that's what we got paid for um, for that particular thing. You know, you. Full day, um, you know, obviously everything else was taken care of. So the venue hire was taken care of by Ryan and all of the organizing, ticket sales, taxes, um, lunches for attendees, all that kind of stuff. You know, basically we just had to roll up, um, entertain people, teach them for a day. Um, and he was very good. You know, he'd give you a check on the way out the door, which was, which was great. Um, and I did a couple of those and, that's where I kind of really realized, uh, that I was quite good at it, really. You know, it's 
as you've probably found, it's it's not the easiest thing in the world to keep people's attention for a whole no, day. No, I think it's like speaking and that people assume it's actually very easy until they do it. Well, yeah. And there's, so there's a couple of things. I mean, there's it, yes, it, it's, it's incredibly hard work to keep people focused. Um, and it depends on the style of workshop that we do. Maybe we'll talk about that in a minute. Because um, I've been in mine and I've been in a few other people's and lots of people structure them in different ways. So we'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we were teaching, I was teaching kind of 30 people. And, you know, maybe it was at the time when kind of transcending was popular. So, uh, you know, we sold sold out tickets fairly well, um, um, put on a couple of extra dates. So, you know, we would kind of be doing back-to-back workshops. So, yeah, you know, I'd be doing, I'd be making like three grand you know, in a couple of days. Yes, I imagine once you've produced the content for the workshop, then after that first time you've given it, it starts to actually make money because the amount of time that you put into creating the workshop itself is surely worth more than sort of one thousand, one thousand five hundred pounds. Well, yes. Now this is the this is the thing that that I don't think a lot of people realise is that it can take months and months and months. I mean, you know, not sitting here till, you know, you've got a huge beard, but, you know, on and off, um, you know, doing it on top of your kind of, you know, your client work. And I do mine in the evenings and weekends and stuff like that. So it does take a hell of a long time. I mean, my workshops, a full day workshop will generally have um, example files, which, you know, I give everybody and probably a bit somewhere between 400 and 500 slides. Um, yeah. Now I don't expect people to kind of sit there and, you know, suck all the slides in, but you know, they're there as backdrop or they're there as illustration. So there's a hell of a lot of work, but once you've done it, generally speaking, it only takes half a day uh, to update it for the next time that you do it. So I'm giving another, I'm giving my CSS talk, my CSS responsive workshop next week. I'm, I'm doing a freebie for the students at Manchester Met. Um, Because handheld is coming up, right? Yeah. And it's been a little while since I've given my responsive CSS workshop. So I thought, well, I need to practice it. If I'm going to practice it, I might as well do it in front of a a room. So uh, then we arranged to do it for the students, which is, you know. Yeah, that's a nice thing to do. So anyway, so yeah, so it doesn't take that long to update things once you've got them and you know there's only a limited lifespan i reckon that there's 12 months in a workshop so this responsive css one that i'm doing i will i will give probably until about next september um and then i shall stop it and the more the more you do it obviously the you know the better value for for us it is um but yeah like for the carson thing it was like three thousand quid for two days that sounds like a lot of money um, but yeah, when you take into account the three months it took to write the, the content, it's like a little mini book. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a huge amount to keep people entertained for a whole day. So this is this is why, and so and you know, those tickets were fairly fairly expensive even at the time. You know, they were kind of you know somewhere around about three hundred three pound three hundred and fifty pounds something like that for a, for a ticket. And then we. Thought to ourselves, why why are we doing this through an agent effectively? Um, surely it can't be that hard to organise these things ourselves. Uh, that's exactly what Arahat said to me because he's been organising his own workshops for years. 
for that reason. And said, well, why not just next time do your own and then you can pocket even more of the money. Well, Sue is an incredibly methodical organiser. Are you cl- clicking a pen? Oh, OK. I thought I could hear a clicky thing. I'm gonna slap you. Anyway. I think maybe I'm twitching in my chair. I'll still. <laughs> <laughs> no, Sue's a really meticulous organiser. So we decided that we would we would do a pilot and we arranged a, a creative design workshop. It wasn't techie. There was no code. It was purely about kind of visual design inspiration. And we organised that at a venue in London. This is, I think this is 2008. And we did our very first one and we sold it out and it was very successful. And, you know, we learned how to do, um, I think it was, you know, Eventbrite or something that we used for, you know, the ticket sales. Um, you know, we learned about catering and about getting the best rate out of venues and all that kind of stuff. And that was pretty successful. And we've done several years where we've done things like that. We organized our own hard boiled, uh, workshops here. And that was, that was great. And it, and it worked really well. You know, once, once you've got the content, then as long as you're not kind of doing it too often and people, oh no, no, him again, then, um, then it works. And yeah, those, well, you've also got the benefit of having a, a Sue who is very good at doing those things. Yeah, no, she is very, very good. And she's very good at remembering things like, um, insurance. Now, the very first one that we did, um, we'd booked, we wanted to do quirky venues. So we'd actually booked Central St. Martin's School of Art, which is a lovely venue. And then on the morning that we were due to, you know, do the workshop, we arrived, the place was locked up. Um, there'd been some kind of, um, power cut across the building. Nobody was being let in. And we were like, crap, we've got 30 people turning up in half an hour. Um, what are we going to do? And literally the security people were not letting us through the door. We were, you know, we, we were on the verge of, well, that's our first workshop and we were on the verge of a complete disaster. And then Sue looked across the road and she said, there's a sign there. It says venue high, go and ask them. So literally, I'm not making this stuff up. Literally with 25 minutes until people were supposed to arrive, I walked over the road to this venue, um, and said to the lady behind the counter, uh, we'd like to organize a workshop, 30 people. We're going to need AV. We're going to need catering. Um, we're going to need basically, you know, everything that you've got. Um, and the lady said, yeah, that's fine. How, when would you like to do it? I said, oh, I'm at 20 minutes. <laughs> and she looked at me, as Minana might say, gone out and, uh, and said, yeah, we can do that. And literally, we didn't miss a single person. Nobody got, um, you know, nobody got lost. We directed people to the new venue and we just literally took the whole thing across the road. <laughs> that is very lucky. Um, so insurance is important. Um, you know, insurance for making sure that, you know, if I'm not able to, um, you know, if I'm not able to, to do it for whatever reason, if I'm ill, you know, how does that affect people that are flying in from Europe or other places? You know, we've had people coming over from Japan for some of them. So there is, a, you know, a fair amount to bear in mind. So what we've done recently, because we've been busy doing other things, is um, some people have asked, you know, ah, well, can we bring you to, you know, can, can we bring you to do a workshop around the conference? You know, because uh, I've not been speaking that much. Yeah. Um, but it's quite nice to do, you know, I don't want to be on social. I like to go to these things. So workshops have been pretty 
um, much around conferences for the like the last couple of years. So smashing conference, um, handheld, obviously coming up. And the deal with these and the deal with external organizers. So this goes for, it goes for the guys that I work with in Japan. It goes for, uh, John Orsop and Maxine Sherin, who organize all the web direction stuff. So they help me when we go to Australia. Um, and it it's the same deal with, uh, Smashing Magazine and Handheld is that basically we get 50% of the profit each. Yeah. So the tickets are, you know, whatever they are, two, three hundred pounds. You take out the costs of the venue and the catering and all the stuff that you have to go with it. And then whatever's left over is split 50, 50. And that we, that's great for us. Cause you know, you share the risk, but you share the, the reward as well. Um, and that's the way that we've been doing it recently. And it's a good way to, you know, rock up, um, you know, do your thing. You don't make as much, obviously, you know, we might, if, if we have 30 people, at kind of 300 quid ish ticket price, we'll probably roll away with something like between four or five thousand pound. That's uh, not bad. Which is not bad. It's not as good as obviously, you know, nine or ten thousand pound if you're organizing it yourself. Um, but the best thing about piggybacking on the back of a conference like Smashing, of course, is that you've got their publicity machine driving ticket sales. Yeah, which was what I was going to ask about as well. Is I've seen a lot of people trying to sell workshop recently that haven't been selling well at all. And I think those are mostly those that aren't around conferences. But in sort of even in very populated areas like London or Brighton, and even for very sort of hard skills which appeal to corporate employers like HTML5 and CSS3 and stuff, and still I've seen people struggling. Well, you know, one of the reasons why we stopped doing that, we we sold out really well for the first few. We did three, no, no we did five hard-boiled workshops um, across the UK over one whole year. And we did really well for the first three. The fourth one was a bit slower. And the fifth one was really slow, actually. The Manchester one in December was really slow. So we knew that we were going to have 10 spaces left over because we always, we tried to get 30 as a target, 30 yeah. attendees. That's quite a lot. Yeah. Um, but for the style of workshop that I do, it's about the right number. Uh, so we still had, you know, 10 or 15 spaces. Um, and you know, to be honest, I was really tired and I just couldn't be bothered to, you know, spam anybody on Twitter anymore trying to drum up any ticket sales. So we just thought, screw it. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll give those tickets to the students at Manchester Met. Um, and that's what we did. We just donated those tickets to them. Um, well, that's a good way of making it full as well. But yeah, which, you know, it helps us along the way. But it was funny because I think one of the reasons why we struggled at that point was lots and lots and lots and lots of other people have started doing workshops. You know, every conference now seems to have workshops attached to it. Yeah. Um, there were people trying to do things independently. Um, and, you know, I've got to say that, you know, 300 pounds average is, you know, it's a, it's, it's a good price, but it's expensive, you know, and there were people out there, um, that were doing, you know, doing their own workshops for like 99 quid. Yeah. Um, and, you know, unfortunately I think that just, you know, it devalues, uh, 
it devalues it for for other people. You might say to, oh, well, you know, it makes it more accessible. It, it really, it 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 kind of more, does more damage, I think, than than anything. Else. Yeah, that that worried me about my workshop was the price was set lower than we originally discussed, and I think it it's about perceived value as well. I think that if people, if you're doing workshops for that amount of money, people will think they're only worth that amount of money. Whereas what, in theory, what they're going away with is hopefully a lot more, worth a lot more than that. Yeah, and it's, you can justify the cost in all kinds of different ways. You know, you can justify it in terms of, oh, well, think about how that equates to what, you know, how much you're going to earn from how you implement this stuff over the, you know, over the years. But I don't do that. I think that £300 roughly is a really fair price for a complete day you know with catering with all the stuff that goes with it i mean the venues that we always try to choose you know they've got kind of th- throughout the day catering so you know you've got tea and coffee and biscuits and stuff not just at the breaks but you know all the time we've got a couple of really good venues that we always use um and i think it's a fair price but you know we we can make money on workshops um and i i won't travel far now to a conference unless generally unless there's a workshop attached to it yeah um now events apart i'm doing i shouldn't really say they haven't announced the schedule yet um i'm doing event apart in atlanta in february don't tell jeffrey i said that um now there's no workshop attached to that but hell it's an event apart what are you going to do you're not going to you know but um if I was going to be traveling to another conference, you know, far afield, um, you know, it takes a week generally to, you know, you've got to prepare your material, you've got to get there, you've got to stay there, you've got to get back. Um, and then you're exhausted. Exactly. So it, it actually justifies the cost of travel for me to, to, to go and do workshops. Um, yeah. so that's, that's very, that's very important. Um, I actually turned out, I don't think I really regret this, but, uh, a couple of years ago, I got asked if I'd go to Webstock in New Zealand. And unlike everybody else that gets asked to go to Webstock, I turned it down because, um, they were offering a flat fee for the workshop. Yeah. Um, and it just didn't make it. It was like, it was something crazy, like $750. It wasn't, it wasn't a lot of money. And there was, you know, there was no way that I could justify flying around the world to, to go and do that. Um, because, you know, th- that's what I've been doing more recently is making the, the workshop stuff pay for travel. Even to the point, and bear this one in mind, right? Um, I decided last year that I couldn't spend the bloody winter in the UK again. Yeah. And I wanted to go to Australia. So we went out to Australia for, I think it was about five or six weeks in January, February. And to pay for the trip, I did four workshops. I did one in Perth, Melbourne, uh, Sydney and Brisbane. And those workshops paid for the whole trip, accommodation, flights, all of our spending money. They literally paid for the whole trip. And I came back with money to spare. That's brilliant. Now, we did something in Japan. Sue and I went to Japan in April. Um, and I did one workshop there in Tokyo with our friend Satoshi. Didn't expect actually to, you know, to break even. It paid for our couple of weeks in, in, in Japan. And I came back with three or four grand to spare. So 
you know, you if you've got something, if you go, go and do accessibility workshops, you know, it's a great way of getting to places because, you know, it helps to pay for the trip. Yeah. So you said about your workshop style that you give. What's that? Because like? I've not actually, I think I've only ever been to a couple of workshops. And so I, I don't know. I, they were different, but I'm not sure what people's different styles are. Okay. Well, some people do it much more lecture style. And that's the kind of thing that I do um, in that it's much more kind of presentation um and now you think well you've got a whole day presentation that's going to be really tedious um and hard to follow but actually to be honest mine is more like a kind of full day stand-up comedy routine with a lot of audience participation yeah um and i really do encourage people to you know join in there's i've, I've developed techniques for kind of building a building an audience throughout the day you know there's always one guy who with the windows laptop that you can take the mickey out of he's you know he's the butt of the jokes for the entire day um so that's the kind of present that's the kind of workshop that i tend to do now there is a practical component to it you know i do talk about code in the, in the new css one but rather than rather than saying right this is how flexbox works um and if you open up file number 23 and um, you know and now you know i don't do that I'll have the code there. The people get the example files and all the material the day before. So they can know what's coming. If they want to start playing around with it and go, ah, that's what he means with their laptop, then that's fine. But nobody has to do that. In fact, a lot of people just don't bring laptops to my workshops anymore. They just come and sit and, you know, suck it in. Um, because I've been to practical workshops in the past. I've been to one. I went to, uh, I went to one of Sarah's iOS workshops, uh, in Manchester a couple of years ago. And she has a very different style. She, she breaks the day down into, uh, four, four sessions. She'll kind of talk for 45 minutes, um, each session, um, and explain the topic and whatever, you know, we're, we're learning. And then she, and then she'll break everybody into groups and then they'll say, right, okay, now we're going to, now we're going to design an app or, you know, here's a brief that I've had from a client. Um, let, you know, you, you guys go away and, um, you know, and workshop it. And that's, you know, that seems to work for her. But whenever I've tried things like that, it all just falls on its face. That's a bit more like how I did mine. Um, mine was split into five sections and, had a long, as you said, lecture style beginning and then exercise based on that theme. You see, uh, I struggle with that because I think to myself, people could, could do, they could do the exercises at home in their own time. Oh, the, the key is, for me, is then the discussion after the exercise, which is kind of what I tried to do is because my workshop was about, um, sort of design theory and sort of how we can apply practical design theory stuff to what we do on the web and so it was like having a, a group critique session afterwards where we would discuss what each other have done and what works and what didn't work and things like that and I because I was trying to encourage people to think about um, how communication is such a vital part of design and being able to talk about what you've done it's how you how you get better and how you can work with other people 
but then that's because it was the subject. So yeah, yeah I, th- I, knew I think the topic that. makes a difference. Yeah. Um, and I think that I, I haven't been to it because um, I was doing something on the same day, but Alex went to one of Aaron Walter's workshops in Freiburg last year. And he said it was amazing. And he said that there are, you know, people that do performances, which is, you know, what I do mostly. Um, and then there are people that kind of really get down to the business, which is what Aaron did. And Alex had a fabulous time. He raved about it. Um, so yeah, I think it comes down to the subject, you know, with, with CSS, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to like get people sitting there coding. I just yeah, don't... oh, I went to a good coding one. Of the couple of workshops I've been to, um, Seb Lee Delisle's um, Creative JS one was a really good coding um, workshop. I, I actually, over the day, I built a little Pong game, and, and I themed it all like it was tennis and everything. <laughs> that that was good, but I think he's good at doing coding talks, and so I think that. If you can, if you're someone that can do that and make it fun and interesting while you're giving coding talks, then you could probably get away with it in a workshop. But I don't think many people could. Yeah, I don't know. The, our format seems to work for us and for me presenting it and for the content that we do. And yeah, I mean, we 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 we've, we've tried to sort of change things around at different times, um, but yeah, it seems to work. Well, thank you. That's answered loads of of my questions. And I know there are a few other people that I said, I'm going to ask Andy about workshops. And they were like, oh, I want to know about that. Yeah, no, they are a very good thing to do. And, you know, to answer your first question, um, yes, they are. They do make financial sense um, if you want to take the risk and if you can sell the tickets. Yeah, I think selling tickets might be a, a bit of a dark art. I think obviously you're name does very well to sell tickets and the fact that you've written good books and stuff like that 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 would help um, but it's interesting to see how other people also sell workshop tickets yeah well rachel is doing rachel andrew i notice has been doing workshops about um you know building and selling a product which is yeah. obviously what they've done and now i notice today that she's writing a new book which they're self-publishing um on the same subject now that now that is where you can really tie everything up into a nice little ball because if you think about doing, you know, your accessibility workshop, for example, and you go, you've got your book about little, about accessibility, like a little kind of pocket guide size book, for example, I'm not saying it has to be a, a five simple steps guide. Um, but something like that, where you've got like a, a product, a package, you know, on a small scale, that's what people have been doing for years in other areas. You know, you got your, you know, your Dale Carnegie business workshops where, you know, people pay thousands to come and hear, even not even him, you know, isn't he dead? I don't know. But, you know, people come on to talk about, um, you know, that kind of business methodology and it's all about the books and all about this. I'm not saying you have to do it in a kind of cynical way, but it wraps things up really neatly. And it, it, for us anyway, you know, you get a lot more mileage out of the same content. Because, you know, people yeah. that can't turn up for the workshop because they're in Alaska, you know, they may spend, you know, $5.99 on your little, on your pocket guide book. Yeah, I think it's also really good to see um, ways that you can keep earning from that as well. 
once once you've written the book and put it out there as it's an ebook, there's no um, sort of printing costs, and so you could keep making money on a long tail forever, and it's just doing it as a passive income. Yep, and that that's one of the things that um, that we've been planning to do. And I've got my CSS workshop, which you know that it is going to turn into a little book at some point in the next you know three months, three or four months. I've got my other talk that my my general kind of responsive um, design and it's a design flow and decisions kind of workshop that I do. Um, that's the one that I did last year. And that's, that's a nice little subject matter for a book. So I'm thinking about doing kind of two things back to back. That's a, that's a cool way to do. Um, so yeah, I tell you what, while we're talking about printing stuff, um, can we talk about blush, our sponsor for this week? Yeah. Okay. So blush letterpress printers talk about them a lot on unfinished business. They provide beautiful letterpress printing for designers and artists. Now, they're based up here in North Wales, near me, but Mark and his people, they work with customers all over the world. They even work with you, Laura. Will they? <laughs> all the way, all the way down in. Where do you live again? Your, your favourite place, Brighton. <laughs> I, I, I saw what you said about to Brad Frost about Brighton. <laughs> Yeah, now, on one hand, I'm not even going to get into that. On one hand, blush print on beautiful hand-engineered machines. I mean, they've had their printing presses rebuilt. So although they're old, like 100 years old, they're, they're still like new. And blush, they even make their own printing plates in-house as well. On the other hand, they use the latest digital technologies, just like we do. Um, so it's like they blend ink and oil with pixels. They mix the old and the new. Now, you know, as well as printing business cards and personalised and wedding stationery, this time of year, Blush, they get really busy printing Christmas cards too. So even a grumpy old Christmasophobe like me, um, I know that sending out Christmas cards can be a good way to promote yourself, your business, keep in touch with your customers. So just last week, Blush had their new hot foil printing press installed. And just like their other presses, it's been reconditioned and hand-built, rebuilt. So it's like new now. It was built in uh, 1962, this press. Ah, that is actually older than me. Something is, at least. Hot foil, now, if you're not aware of that, it's, it's just like letterpress printing, but rather than using ink, blush use a foil and heat to print the colour onto the paper. So as an example... They could letterpress print a Christmas card design with ink and then add a touch of reflective metallic foil. That would be cool. Very Christmassy. Exactly. Um, it just produces amazing results. Also, this technique means that you can print light-coloured ink on dark stocks. That's one of the drawbacks of traditional letterpress. But foiling helps to solve that. So they can now, they can foil an opaque white onto black paper that looks amazing so i love working with blush and i know you will too better get your skates on if you want some of their amazing cards ready for christmas take a look at some of the work on their blog then give blush a call go to blushpublishing.co.uk slash unfinished to find out more and then they'll know that you heard about them on the show woohoo blush What were we talking about before? Uh, 
Um, we just finished talking. We were talking about pretty. We just finished talking about the workshops, though. Oh yeah, yeah. No, sorry, I was still hung up on Brighton. From <laughs> <laughs> now we're talking about printed stuff. Yeah, that was it. I should ask you my other question. Go on, then. So I'm thinking about becoming a limited company because I probably should have done it a long time ago, and I'm quite scared of accounting stuff, so I haven't. Um, but then I was thinking. If I become a limited company, I've got to come up with a fancy name, haven't I? Because as a sole trader, I just my company name is my name because I, I thought that was quite a nice thing to have. But then everyone has fancy names that are limited company. So I was wondering, how did you come up with stuff and nonsense? Hmm. So, f- well, first of all, I don't think that everybody has to have a you know a silly name. Or even, you know, even, even a different name. I mean, I know that Anna, she set up her business recently. Um, and she called that one Maven Limited. Yeah. Um, I don't think that that's necessarily a good thing. Um, we know people that have set up businesses, um, in their own names. I mean, my friend Mark Porter, who I work with, um, he's Mark Porter Associates, I think. Um, Mark Bolton. Yes. Mark Bolton Design. So they run very successfully. Um, and I used to think, well, maybe, maybe you do that if it's only, if you think it's only ever going to be you. Yeah. Um, but actually, you know, no, yeah, Mark Bolton's grown his business and, you know, they've got lots of staff and they do, you know, amazing things all over the world. And it's still Mark Bolton design. So even though it's not all about him anymore, um, the company name kind of still works. So you could be, you know, Laura Cowbag Design, and it would be fine. Yeah, I think. Yeah, at the moment I'm yeah just Laura Cowbag, which can create actually some confusion when that's my company name and my name. But yeah, the, the reason I did that in the first place was that I wa- I didn't want there to be the appearance that I was more than one person. No. Because everything was it was always about transparency, and that way people knew that I was what they were getting. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, because I've always had a, I've always had a hang up with my name anyway. Um, so you know, the whole Clark thing. Yeah. Um, you know, don't want to get into that. But I didn't want to set up a company that was like you know Andy Clark Design for all kinds of reasons, and I didn't want to do the thing that people did at the time where everything was kind of called something web. Uh, because I didn't want to limit my potential. I didn't want to, you know, if we wanted to get into print design or, you know, video or you know, whatever the hell we might have done yeah. over the years, I didn't want to be limited by being, um, you know, like Apple dropped computer from their name, you know, and just became Apple Inc. Um, I didn't want to be limited by the name. Uh, limit our potential by the name so i thought well we we do want to come up with something and i used to work with a lot of photographic studios over the years and they a lot of them had fruity names you know i used to work for studio orange and (laughs) there was a guy i remember in leeds chris something back in the day um and when he was when he was working he'd been fired from i think all of the major studios in leeds so when he set up on his own, he called himself Black Sheep, which I always liked because he was kind of like, the, you know, the black sheep of the 
Leeds photographic community. <laughs> um, and there was strawberry in Manchester and lots of, you know, lots of kind of fruity photographic studios. I didn't want, I wanted to do something. I didn't want to be kind of, you know, designed web or, you know, something like that. Um, so it really came down to the nickname, I suppose. And we'd already registered malarkey.co.uk like a year or two before, and I hadn't really done anything with it. So when we set up the business, I just literally, I looked up in the dictionary what the definition of malarkey was. Yeah. And, you know, I couldn't call ourselves bullshit limited. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should have done. Maybe that would have been better. <laughs> Maybe that would have been more appropriate. But one of the definitions in, in, in the dictionary was stuff and nonsense. And I thought, bum, that's it. And that was the, that was the end of the. That's a really cool, like, I like that. That's really well rounded. Now we didn't, when we first started, I mean, I, I didn't think it was going to be a problem. And, um, you know, cause I've been used to kind of fruity names in photographic studios and design studios for years. And I remember we'd been set up for about a month or two and a friend of ours recommended us to some little engineering company locally. And anyway, I went to see the guy and he said, what was the name of your company again? And I told him and he said, no, we can't work with you. And I said, why? And he said, well, if we ever had to sue you, we'd be a laughing stock. <laughs> Charming. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, let's not, uh, let's not start a project on that basis. In fact, I want to talk about this later because we've got something related. Yeah. Talk about it later. But it sounds like that's a blessing in disguise, actually. You know what? I think so. I think we should just warn people now. This is going to be a long show today. We're just going to keep talking. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so that's where it came from, stuff and nonsense. And, um, and I haven't regretted it. Um, I haven't really ever pined. In fact, I, I got very attached to it. Back in the uh, 2005 or six, we started up a, another e-commerce software business, um, with another guy. And anyway, it's a long story. But, um, it, it didn't work out and <laughs> drove me to another bloody nervous breakdown. But all the way along the line, he wanted to roll everything into the new company, including all of kind of stuff's assets. And it was like, oh, you, you know, you don't need stuff anymore. You know, you can close stuff down. You don't need the company entity. You know, you mustn't, you mustn't talk about stuff and nonsense anymore. You know, you should talk about our new business. Um, and I had a real emotional attachment to it. Um, because it had been the, it had been mine, you know, I'd started it and I, I worked on it for all hours, you know, and I'd been up, had ups and downs with it and there was no way that I was just going to kind of let it go. And I'm glad I didn't. Cause you know, when that didn't work out, we just came home and, and started again and, uh, and the name, you know, the name carried on. Yeah. Yeah. That's nice. And it's not dated or anything either. No. Often you see, you see names that look like they would have sounded really cool about 20 years ago and now they sound very old well you know that's the whole hairdresser thing isn't it that we oh, laugh about yeah. sarah said that sarah parmenta said that there's a place near her that's called blonde dye beach oh that's it's terrible so i was um i was doing a bit of uh sort of rss surfing the other day um Anyway, yesterday, Google, they dropped their, they, they dropped support for IE9 in their, in their products. Did you see this? I know, I 
No, I didn't. I tweeted a bit about it earlier today. But basically, they've said they're not going to do any more testing or engineering for IE9. It's going to be IE10 and above from now on, which I thought was interesting. Anyway. Yeah, well, I guess other browsers do that, don't they? It seems Microsoft are the only ones that are stuck catering for their older ones. I suppose so. But, you know, even, even they, you know, they're being quite aggressive about, you know, dropping things when they roll off. But anyway, so if, if Google aren't going to be supporting IE9, uh, I was wondering whether or not made me think about updating the contract killer because I've got the browser testing clause in the contract killer. Yeah. Um, and it always it always says that in, well, over the last year or so, it, it said we'll try and do our best for IE8. Um, and I think maybe I'll just now update it to say, you know, we'll try and do our best for IE9, which is actually not that hard because it's a, it's no, a good that browser. that makes a huge difference. But... Um, you know, obviously, you know, we'd, we'd never not do anything for those older browsers, but you know, some, it has to become a, uh, it has to become a, a, a case. You know, somebody has to say, well, listen, you know, 75% of our users use IE8. So, you know, it's important that we support those people. So, you know, we might do a bit of extra testing. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I think you always have to make those decisions per project anyway. But it, it reminded me of, thinking about this contract, changing it, of something that you wrote recently um, about including, what did you call it, an ask me anything clause in the contract. What was all that about? Yeah. Well, when I was at DARE conference in September, which is this really fantastic conference, which ended up with a tagline of uh, people skills for digital workers, which makes it sound not as quite as interesting as it was. It was fantastic. It was basically people talking about the human side of the work that we do. And there were some amazing talks there. And one of them was from Kevin Hoffman. And one of the parts, and he's very experienced, he used to work for Happy Cog. And um, he he does his own thing now. And he's very experienced working with big clients and a variety of clients. And he said that he had an Ask Me Anything clause in his contracts. And this really interested me because... I thought, well, of course, clients can ask me anything. It's not like they'll ask me something and I'm going to go, no, I'm not going to tell you the answer to that. But the actual act of saying it in your contract, I think, is very encouraging to clients. I think it's about keeping an open discussion. It's about saying to people, yeah, it's okay to challenge what I'm doing. Um, I'm here to be able to explain it. That's the whole point. And I quite like that. I, I thought it was a... A cool thing to do, so I was like, I'll stick that in my one as well. Then, has it made a difference? Well, I've not actually sent a contract out since I've added it in. I should, I'm going to find the actual, uh, actual, what I've actually put in there. You've gone all distant, you're leaning away. Sorry, (laughs) leaning into my computer as I squint at my screen. (laughs) So, what I've actually written in there. Ask me anything. I want you to feel that you understand what's happening and why throughout the duration of the project. Please feel free to ask me any question that comes to mind. I'll always be happy to answer your questions. Explain what I'm doing or how I work. Because I think that a lot of my clients are also quite low-tech or new to having someone do this kind of work for them at all. Often they're people having the first website made for their business. And so I don't want them to be scared by what I'm doing. I don't want them to feel like they can't ask questions because they might look stupid. 
um, because I think people can do. I think this is great, but my question is, why does this belong in a contract and not in your estimate or accompanying material? This is the kind of thing that I'd want to see on the homepage of your website, but I don't understand why it's something that's kind of contracty. Interesting. We'll have to talk about sort of sales materials again at some point because uh, we've put together like a little package. I mean, you know, it's not war and peace. It's not, you know, tons and tons and tons for people to read. But we've got a we've got a, a document which talks about our design process and how we work. And it's like two sides of A4. And then we've got another document that I tend to roll into an estimate which talks about the things that we do and we don't do. So it says, you know, we don't do hosting. Um, yeah. but if you want us to, you know, install something on a host on somebody else's hosting, then that's fine. And, you know, this is how we work it. And the same thing with, you know, CMSs as well. You know, these are the CMSs that we like to use and our quotes based on using perch usually. Yeah. Um, so that's where I kind of thought that this thing would fit better because it's in the kind of, it's, it's almost like a supporting document to, you know, you using it to try and get the sale, aren't you? At the end of the day. Well, when I get to the point of the contract, the sale is pretty much agreed. Um, usually it's kind of the last minute thing. Um, I think that one of the reasons I've not had any support, other supporting documentation is that the projects that I work on vary so much and the type of clients I work with vary so much. So one day I might be working with someone who's a developer who's absolutely fantastic at their job. They know exactly what they're doing. They know far more about front end than I do. And, um, and I'm, maybe I'm working with them on some design stuff, or it might be someone who is setting up a business for the first time. They're really, um, low tech. They've just Googled web design and somehow found me and they're looking for a website. They don't understand any of the terminology. And it's very hard to write a document that can fit all of that. I do have a text expander. I have lots of little bits and bobs of explanations of my process in different types of language that I'll put into emails. Um, but otherwise, I yeah, it's very difficult to have one document that would do it all. Hmm. I've just noticed literally in the last 20 seconds that cause I've just got my notification come through that Harry Roberts, who was on the show, was it last week? He's just open sourced his contract. So nice. I shall take a look at that and put a link to it in the show notes and maybe we can talk about that some other time. Huh. Interesting. I tell you what I've, I've got to be in my bonnet about. What? Which has happened over the last week or so. Um, I've got to be in my bonnet about how people 
communicate with us. And I'm not talking about, you know, clients and emails and all the stuff we're talking about last week with, with Harry. Um, but just some of the stuff, some of the ways in which people communicate, um, a couple of instances I want to talk about. One is when people write to us, uh, asking for a job or asking for a placement. That's something that's happened. It happens regularly, but it's happened over the last week. And, oh God, I've never seen some stuff written so badly. <laughs> I had a, a good one from a student the other week. They wanted me to answer some questions for one of their projects. Yeah. And I, I was really busy, so I sent back a quick reply saying, oh, if you could just let me know roughly how long you want the answers to be and when you need them by um, so that I can try and get this out for you. And uh, I just got a reply saying ASAP and nothing else. Yeah. And I was like, I'm not replying, actually. No, I'm no, not well, bothering. It's not worth it. The other, the other thing is, is, and again, I'm not going on a rant about clients, but um, in terms of communicating with us in terms of, you know, wanting us to hire us or getting us enthusiastic about a job or at least kind of giving me the right information. I got a, I got an estimate, uh, re- proposal this week. Uh, I've been tweeting this. So, you know, apologies to anybody that follows me because you might have seen, <laughs> might have seen me talk about this, but we got this thing through and it looked like, you know, it looked like your average kind of average job. There was no kind of alarm bells until I opened up the document that kind of accompanied this, uh, this request for proposal. And at the bottom of it were terms of the agreement. So I'll, I'll go through. I won't read them all. There's like I don't know, ten of these things. But um, we'll retain full ownership and copyright. Spelt wrong. That's that's copy and then the word right. W R I T E for any design and development work, as well as any web content provided by the web design company. Well, okay. Let's think about that for a minute. Yeah, sure, you can own it. But the common practice is for us to own it and license it to you. That's how illustrators and photographers and graphic designers generally work. Um, however, if you want to, work, you know, I'm just saying now, if, if you know, if, if, if the client wants to own the whole thing, if they want to buy the copyright office, well, yeah, they can do that. We, but that's part of a negotiation. Um, we reserve the right to retain ownership of all design and development work, as well as any web content provided by the web design company, even if it's decided to discontinue the development of the site by either party at any point. We reserve the right to pass on any design and development work that's been paid for to another developer if the decision's made to withdraw from the agreement. Okay. So we might like what you've done for your design, but we don't want to pay for you to do it because you're a bit more expensive and our, our brother who is also uh, does web design from his bedroom well then, happily you know, finish it off i'm not prepared to be as cynical as you laura calabang on this <laughs> one i'm going to keep going with it right so the web design company will not promote the fact that they have designed or created the website at any time okay so we can't talk about this thing in our portfolios which is fine this is another bit the web design company agrees not to recreate the website either in whole or in part for any other company or for their own personal use. So I thought, okay, this is, this is, this is, there's something going on here. I'm trying to read between the lines. I'm not being, I'm not going to be cynical. I'm not thinking that, you know, they're out to stitch me up or, you know, they're idiots. I want to try and get to the bottom of this. So I wrote back to, uh, to the guy and said, 
And I went through a few things and I said, yeah, it's normal practice in creative fields, including web design for a designer or an illustrator or a photographer to retain ownership of our work. And we license it to you, but we'd be happy to discuss a fee for granting that ownership. Um, and then I went on to talk about, uh, you know, what happens if, if they want to cancel the contract. So I said, you know, our contract describes what happens in the event of the project being terminated. Although this happened, it hasn't happened to us. It's common practice for a client to pay a kill fee to end a project. You know, and when that's paid for, we'd be happy to let you have the work, blah, 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 blah. Um, and then when it comes to the stuff about um, not reusing bits, I said, I'm afraid this is, this is unrealistic. You know, the web is built on the work of others that have gone before. And while the designs that we make are always unique, some of what we do is based on patterns and libraries. Yeah, some of which we've open sourced ourselves. So therefore it will be impossible for us not to reuse a component that we might have used on your site. And I said to him at the end, may I ask what's prompted you to include these terms? Have you had a previous bad experience or have you just copied these items from somewhere else? Um, would you be willing to discuss the issues with us? I thought that was a fair, you know. Yeah, that's really, really cool. Fair, to do that. fair thing. So anyway, I get a reply back from the guy to say, uh, Hi, Andrew. It's very simple, really. We operate in a highly competitive and often unprincipled industry. And so we insist on putting measures in place that will protect our interests. <laughs> I'm like, OK, da, da, da. so then, then the end of this email, he said, uh, I'm happy for you to outline your payment terms and any penalties you intend to apply for cancellation, etc. I will then want to discuss realistic timetables for delivery. And understandably, we'll also be looking to introduce penalties where deadlines are not met. It's possibly the scariest line ever. So I replied to this guy because I'm still I'm still in I'm still in a reasonable mood. <laughs> so anyway, I said to, I wrote back and I went, Hey, thanks for writing again and clearing that up. We love to work on projects that make us smile when we go to work. Your mention of penalties, etc., doesn't sound like we'd be doing much smiling when working on your project. <laughs> so I think we're going to have to pass. Good luck with your project. And I thought, you know what? That's the last I'm going to hear from this guy. And he replied. And he replied back, which was interesting. Because then he says, well, if you provide realistic timetables, then surely you have nothing to worry about. <laughs> and then he said at the end, I must say, I was rather surprised at you employing a kill fee if we decide to cancel for any reason. I could understand it better if you didn't expect a deposit payment before starting a project. Perhaps your policy is only to take full payment on completion of the job. So if we did decide to pull out halfway through for any reason, then you'd have the right to charge us for the work undertaken to that point. I'm like, okay, now my point for reading this out, right, is that Sometimes you hire tradespeople to do a job. You know, we have we have Neil who comes and decorates our house and we love Neil and we love that Neil wants to work with us um, and he does a superb job. He paints the house and redoes our floors and does our electrics and plumbing, right? But we, when we ask him to do a new job, we like to get excited about, oh, this is going to look so good, Neil. You know, we're going to have these amazing lights in here. You know, we want all the switches to be all fandango -y, you know. There's a way of, of getting people to want to work with you, isn't there? Yeah. This guy... You're not doing them a favour. No, this guy didn't grasp that concept, right? <laughs> and, you know, the prospect of working for somebody that, um, you know, makes that initial approach um, in such a kind of, 
negative way um, doesn't kind of make you want to be inspired to, you know, well, to do anything really, not let, let alone give them your best work. No, that's, that would definitely be a red flag. I think someone talking like that, you, you know that a project's not going to be an easy ride. So I wrote back and I said, hey, much like when going out on a first date, we like to be optimistic about the fun we'll have together, not what might happen when, or hopefully if, we break up. <laughs> of course, we know it's important to have things agreed. Our popular open source contract deals with that topic. But your approach is like asking someone to talk about a prenuptial agreement before you've asked them out on a date. That's not how we do business, and it's why we won't be working with you on your project. Um, and guess what? He wrote back. Oh, and what now? Okay, so basically, what was where was the last one? Hi, Andrew. Clearly, we all do things differently, and this is most definitely not a good match. So I wouldn't dream of asking you to work on our project. But thank you for your time anyway. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, a few weeks a few weeks ago when Anna was still doing the show, we talked about a sort of a similar thing. And I think I went overboard. Um, you know, I called it something like, you know, donut proposal of the week or something. Mm, um, yeah, I remember that one. And, you know, I know Anna was very conscious that, you know, maybe I'd gone a little bit too far um, and, you know, gone a bit into kind of, you know, Andy ranting territory. So that's what I'm, I'm not trying to do that with this. It's I'm not thinking that, you know, this guy is a moron because he plainly isn't. Um, the point is, is that I think that, you know, whatever we're buying or however we approach people, there has to be a way of doing it so that, you know, you know, th his objective was to get me to quote for a project. Yeah. Plainly, all that happened was that we spent a couple of hours bouncing emails backwards and forwards, and he didn't get what he wanted. So he could have easily got what he wanted. He might not have liked the quote, but, you know, he could have easily got what he wanted if he'd have just approached it in a slightly different way. Yeah, I think they – I mean, it's the whole thing of nobody teaches people how to be clients. I think that um, you did the right thing by actually letting him know what he was doing wrong as well. And while you did it in a jokey way, you weren't unkind. And I think that's useful too, I think, as a reply. Because often you will get people that they, they've just not done this kind of thing before or the people they've done it with haven't done it in a very sensible way. Yeah, it's... it's Writing is hard, I know that. Um, but sometimes... You know, so, sometimes... I think that, you know, you just need to write how you speak a lot of the time and just pay attention to detail. I mean, we got a, um, an inquiry from, um, a, a web designer or developer this week, um, asking me, and it's not the first time this happens. Uh, we had one a couple of weeks ago. Um, and again, I, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes, but I posted my reply, um, on Twitter because I thought, you know, am I doing the right thing by actually pointing out somebody's flaws? Um, this particular guy had sent me a, um, an inquiry about, uh, you know, did, did we have any work available? You know, um, 
And what did I reply here? Um, if I could give you a little bit, hi Adam, if I could give you a little bit of advice about your presentation, the first thing I do when I receive an email like yours is to look for a URL. Although your email didn't mention one, I looked at your domain and it doesn't give a very good impression. You know, I can't see anything about you, your work or links to what you do in the industry. Um, you know, there's none of that. There's no links to Twitter or Flickr or Instagram or anything that tells me about you. Potential employers often look beyond what you can do and are interested in the person they might be working with. I think you'll have more success if you take an approach like that. Um, honestly, if we were interested in someone with your skills, we probably wouldn't hire you based on the, how you presented yourself this time. I hope you don't think that was too harsh. I think that's nice, honest feedback. And then we got one this week. I've got one in front of me now. Now, this is from a um, what I think is a designer or developer that's working for a local company. Um, now, it's come through to our, uh, you know, generic form address on, on the website. Dear Sir slash Madam, I am wondering if you have any vacancy available of a web designer. I have attached my CV. If you require further information, please do not hesitate to contact me. Thanks. So I think, okay, now we live in Wales. Not everybody's first language is English around here. Um, so, you know, I'll forgive the, I'll forgive the grammar. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, but attached to it is a, is a little PDF here. And, um, this guy, obviously clever person. Um, you know, good range of skills, knows about PHP and, you know, there's some HTML and CSS in here. Did a, a computer science master's degree, um, at, at a university not too far away from here. And also spent time at, at a, uh, did a degree in Manchester. But he spelt Manchester wrong. Yeah, it's not the best impression on, on your CV. So I just feel, I actually feel really sorry for this person because, you know, they're clever. Um, they could be exactly what I'm looking for, but presentation has just completely let them down. Yeah, a lack of attention to detail as well. I, I, I'm always bothered by emails that start with, dear, I don't forget, dear sir, madam, but, or nothing at all, or just hi. Um, because they do have that feeling of, I've sent this to everyone I could possibly find. I've just been sticking this in contact forms all over the place. And I'm not even bothered to look at the name of the person whose website this is. And I've just sent them an email because I don't really care if this person replies. I just want someone to reply. A very, very, very long time ago, I worked with a really good salesman. This was when I was doing sales years ago. And he told me to always keep a little book, like a little field note style book. Always, always keep a little book handy. And when you walked out of a meeting with a customer, just write down something personal about them um, that maybe had happened during that meeting. You know, you know, if their kid's ill or it's the kid's birthday or something like that. Just make a little personal note so that next time you go back, you can go, how did your wife get on at the uh, at the midwife? Yeah? yeah? Because people then feel that, hang on, he's taken an intro. Yeah, you might think that's kind of a sleazy, cynical thing. But trust me, it works because people really think that, hang on, he's paid attention, he's interested in me, and, 
you know, I'm going to give them more time a day. So, <coughs> excuse me, how long would it have taken that guy to literally pick up the phone? First of all, do some research because, you know, does our website mention mine and Sue's name anywhere on it? Of course it does. It's all over the bloody place. So he could have written and gone, you know, hi, Andy. Um, if you don't know the person that you're writing to, just pick up the phone for Christ's sake and say, hi, I need to send you some information with my CV. Uh, you know, I'm a new developer or something in the area. Um, who's the best person I should send it to? Yeah, that's a good start. Right? Because then if I'd have picked up the phone, I'd have gone, send it to me. But, you know, uh, and they, but tell you what, I've got five minutes. I've got a cup of tea. Let's have a chat for five minutes. And we'd have been off on a completely different footing because um, I might have really liked the guy on the phone and said, you know what, I'm free from four o'clock. Why don't you just pop round? You know? Yeah, and I think it's the whole list of all these different things that you can, like your skills and things like that, they don't say very much and particularly if they're not relative to the company that you're sending it to no because i hope that i'm fairly clear about what we do on the website yeah. um and sometimes i'll get inquiries like you know like this particular one that we're talking about a minute ago with the onerous terms um you know he wanted a, a full seo campaign along with the the new site well actually that's my fault because he should never have come through the filter I sh there should be something on the website that goes, if you want SEO, you're barking <laughs> up the wrong tree. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I need to maybe, you know, we're doing a redesign, so I'm going to think about that. But, yeah, you know, make the approach applicable to who you're talking to. And yeah. with the students, too, you know, if, if somebody's looking for a placement or, you know, looking for a job, you put links to stuff, you know, Flickr or Twitter or Instagram or a portfolio, you work. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't even have to be a full portfolio, just a, just something. Just something that's on the web <laughs> that's not a PDF because a PDF doesn't say I have web skills. It says I have uh, print design skills. Yeah, I mean, attention to detail. I, I, got, I, I was talking about this on Twitter the other day and uh, my friend Lee sent me over some some stuff because he runs a, an agency um and he sent me over a few of the things that that he's had over the last sort of uh few months on this on the same vein he um he he got an email fairly recently uh about a placement um and basically the guy had written he said you know hey hello tom i've just finished my second year studying graphic design i know it's pretty late in the year but i was wondering if there were any placements going that i could get on blah 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 the subject line of this email was finally got around to doing this <laughs> yeah. way to set a good impression <laughs> yeah exactly so you know obviously he got he, you know it he, he, he prompted a response um, which was essentially, you know, we, we, we don't give out a lot of placements, but when we do, they go to our most enthusiastic and passionate students. <laughs> Best of luck. Um, there's another one here. I love this one. I love this one. Um, Lee runs this studio called, uh, called Root. Um, so he gets an email through. Hi. Hello. 
I'm inquiring, I'm emailing to inquire if there are any design roles open at Optima Design. <laughs> oh no, they try so hard to get to put the, the name in there, <laughs> the wrong name. You know, that just, again, it just screams, I've cut and paste this several times. Um, and you know, if you want people to feel good about you, you have to kind of make them feel good about you. Yeah, you have to actually put the effort in that you think they're worth. Yeah. And, you know, and again, I think that it goes back to kind of presentation skills. And I decided, maybe you want to kind of join in on this, but I decided that I want to do a talk um, or maybe even a little uh, mini half day workshop for students about how to um, how to make that first impression. I think that's a really good idea, because that's the kind of thing that you don't tend to learn when you're at school. I think that. Um, a few people, because I asked um, Chris Murphy and Richard Eskins over at Manchester Met um, and Adam Proctor down in Winchester whether they'd be interested in, in me doing that. And I think that they do do some kind of businessy stuff for third years in kind of, you know, getting out into the world. Yeah, they call it, uh, when I did it, they called it professional contexts. Ah, yeah, that's the term they use. That's the term they used. So I think I might put something like that together because it's such a shame. There, you know, there must be really good, talented people that yeah. I'd quite like to work with. But it's so full. I mean, I know we don't always get it right. I mean, I make some horrendous cock-ups. Um, oh, I definitely will do. But it just makes me sad that, you know, people sort of, you know, fall down. Yeah, I think also as well, a lot of the training you're given um, – is wrong and they tell you how to write the perfect formal cv and it's just not the most appropriate thing for for every job it might be very appropriate if you want to go and work in some very corporate sector but if you're looking for a job in an agency they're far more likely to be interested in you as a person have you ever done have you did you have to write for placements uh, i think no i i i just i went for places with people I knew I got quite lucky I think a lot of the time I, I don't I don't remember writing for anything I can't remember where Alex did his I mean and he did some, he actually went to blush for one project um, but I can't remember where he did his I think it was some kind of geology thing around here how he got on oh I'll tell you what we did find out um, when, and this, this goes, it's, it's on topic. It goes back to what we're talking about. But Alex was telling me a couple of weeks ago that he looked at several universities for geology and, you know, they've all got their strengths, um, in, in different areas. And, you know, he liked some of them. He didn't like others, but, you know, he, there was a few that he liked. And one of the things that he'd worked quite hard on was his personal statement that they had to put with a submission. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Anyway, Alex being Alex said, you know, it, it was, it was a, it was a piece of work. It wasn't just that, you know, I'm interested in this and that and the other, you know, it was, it was a really beautiful piece of work. And it was talking about all of, uh, you know, the road trips that we've done, you know, trips to the Grand Canyon and, you know, all that sort of stuff. It's full of rocks at Grand Canyon. So he goes for his kind of walk around Leicester and starts talking to one of these lecturers. And, you know, his, what would be his potential lecturers. And the guy goes, ah, you're the guy that does the crazy road trips and went to the Grand Canyon. 
And Alex is like, whoa, you know, <laughs> they remembered me for my personal statement. And he was so impressed. I mean, it was one of the reasons why he felt welcome and he felt that they were, you know, enthusiastic about him. Yeah. And anyway, so, you know, he got what he needed and, and he went to Leicester and, and he loves it there. And then he found out that they all, all of the lecturers have a group of people. They have like four or five people out of the incoming stream that they have to gen up on. <laughs> right. So, and it's part of, it's part of the way that Leicester, Leicester Uni does it is that they'll assign a group of people coming in to a particular lecturer. And, you know, I think this is how it works. He'll go, ah, you're the guy. Um, and what a brilliant technique. Yeah, I thought you were going to say it was because he wrote a really good personal statement, but well, he probably, which I'm sure was probably the case he, anyway. Yeah, no, he probably did. But it was because they'd made such an effort to make him feel special. I mean, you know, we talked about it for years until he until he you know, just discovered that it was part of the plot. <laughs> but that is, is a very nice thing to do because universities are still trying to sell their services to their students. Yeah, so just the thing, I mean, we we get email, even though Anna's gone, you know, I still get email to the show. Not as much. I don't get as much fan mail anymore. So anyway, but we still get, I still get quite a lot of email to the show. And, you know, sometimes, and, you know, just generally email too. Um, and the ones that really stick out are the ones that say things like, I listened to this episode and, or... I read something that you linked to on Twitter and that was really useful. Thanks. And, you know, when it comes to actually making a risk, making a, um, an, an approach like this, you know, you don't want to kind of be, you know, too smarmy, but, you know, a little bit of buttering goes a long way. Definitely. Yeah. And when somebody says to you, um, yeah, you know, I was a big fan of your last book. I don't care whether they've read the last book or not. I mean, how am I supposed to know? What am I going to do? Quiz them on the page numbers, right? It makes you feel as though, oh, okay. And if they actually use the, if they use the title of the book, then that's great. You know, if they call you by name and they, they link and they, they mention the book, you know, that's bonus points right there. Yeah. <laughs> and if they were to say something like, you know, yeah, I, I, actually, you know, I really like that article that, uh, that you linked to that, you know, Brad Frost wrote or, you know, somebody else wrote. I don't do much writing anymore. Um, that, re that was really helpful. Thanks. Anyway, the reason I'm writing is I'm up for a placement and I was wondering whether you had blah, blah, blah. And it's, it just sets a completely different tone, doesn't it? Yeah. I think it, it shows that you're also involved, that you're not just sort of poking in and seeing what you can get. You're, at, you're actually an active member of the community in some way. That you're interested in finding out new stuff and reading and looking at articles and stuff. You can you can you can infer a lot from those little statements. Mm. And you know some of it, some of it's flannel, and some of it's sincere. And to be honest, when you're on the receiving end, it's sometimes really hard to know which is which. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty much impossible to know. <laughs> but I don't think it matters. I think that you know. Again, it just goes back to the objective about what, what you want to achieve. You know, you want to get a response out of somebody. Um, you know, which is, which is not to hit the delete key. Yeah. Well, and it's the same with having a conversation with someone. 
in real life, you don't walk up to someone and sort of butt into their conversation, don't use their name, don't say excuse me. Um, you, you start off with a sort of a nice little icebreaker or something. And there's no reason why you shouldn't use that in email as well. No. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to set aside some time, um, maybe December, depending on whether I've got some some free days. Um, and I'm going to just jot together. I think I might do it on... I might even get really geeky and do it on GitHub. That's a cool idea. So that people can kind of, you know, contribute bits and pieces. And just try yeah, to... Yeah, people can do their own yeah, versions. Yeah. Um, and just try to find... I don't, I don't want to do like a, a boilerplate letter because... That kind of defeats the object. It doesn't defeat the point, yeah. It's 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 guide, guidelines you want, really. Isn't yeah. So that's what I'm going to do. A few do's and don't do's. Yeah, do's and don't do's, I think, is, is, is something that I'm going to kind of put on there. And, you know, maybe there's some way that people can kind of contribute to some good or bad stories. Because um, I remember when Mark Bolton, you know, just going back to what we were talking about earlier on, you know, when Mark was growing his company, and I think it was Colin, the designer or developer that they have there, um, who was, was he their apprentice? I can't remember now. Somebody will correct me. Made this amazing kind of presentation, which was like, God, this is the only guy we're going to have for the job. Um, and just such a difference. I'm going to do that. I'm going to, I'm, I'm fired up to, to try to make a bit of a difference. Sounds good. Hmm. We should wrap it up. Hour and a half. Yeah, you, yeah, sure. You have a birthday party to get to. I do, yeah. I have to dash off. Is there a trifle? I've made an upside-down cake. Oh, lovely. Is it pineapple? No, it's peach. Ooh. Yeah, and on, on request, that one. <laughs> Are they going to be candles? Uh, no, I think it might set the cake on fire. <laughs> oh, what, is it boozy cake? Huh? <laughs> no, it's just the amount of candles. Oh, okay. <laughs> Not as many as I need. Anyway, we should we should go. So, um, if you're interested in any of the links that we mentioned, such as they were, uh, you can find them at unfinished.bz slash 44. That's the number 44. All the links will be on there. Um, people can follow you, Laura, on Twitter. Yeah. At Laura Cowbag. Or me, at Malarkey. And if you want to suggest questions suggest topics even or ask questions you can message the show on twitter at unfinished bz or you can email me he has at unfinished.bz thanks again to our sponsor this week blush support our show by supporting them because they're cool